I suppose I should apologize for last week. Self-pity is not attractive. Neither is a lust for attention. But then, why have this show? Are you really paying attention to something else right now, other than me? You better not be. I've been out and about again, getting out and being among you, while sometimes infuriating and depressing and alienating, is overall healthy. Remembering that there are people. Things happening. The world continues to go on, somehow beyond all odds. Your world sustains itself, even when it should not. The city at night is an interesting thing. Sometimes, I feel, everyday morality, the way we all agree to behave during daylight hours, disappears. You turn to substances. You roam the streets screaming. Or at least your young people do. You're more bold, brazen, cruel, violent, ruthless. Perhaps that's why I can come out and be with you at night. Because the rules are different. Or they don't seem to apply, somehow. They do. They always do. And our transgressions always manage to catch up with us. Take care, is all. I get the feeling that your world is crumbling around you. I'm not saying that it is, but I am saying that there is this unshakable feeling all around of change. Of discontent. Of expectation and anticipation. Anticipation of change, perhaps. Of course there is. There needs to be change. The world has been full of poison for too long, and it cannot last, therefore. And yet it does, somehow. It persists. As I said, your world sustains itself even when it should not. The difficulties many of you face and the difficulties that this old and frail world faces will not disappear. If something cannot shift, cannot adapt... Perhaps it must break, and perhaps in breaking it can then be repaired. What am I saying? <laughs> I don't really know anything about it. I'm on the periphery. I don't really know how to change things and make them better. I have been here for a long, long time, and I don't think I've made anything better in my centuries of being. I think I've been too focused on need and survival to stop and think about improvement. There is a part of me that wants to change things. That deeply hates all that is wrong in the world. All that is violent and cruel and unjust and wasteful. Then there is a part of me that realizes how deeply futile and hypocritical that is. I don't know what to do. But it's not really my world anymore. I'm just a passenger. If I could be a hero, if I could step up and make the world a gentler, more peaceful and beautiful and healthy place, perhaps I could rejoin you. Perhaps I could walk in the light and greet you as an equal. 
as a true friend. Perhaps I could atone for the evil I've unleashed unto the world. Perhaps I would no longer be the evil unleashed unto the world. That's not going to happen, but I suppose I'll keep speaking to you. If I could help you with anything, sleeping, loneliness, even light entertainment, that's good too. I think that's inherently good. It's pure anyway. Thinking about all this, I am led to remember a story about a man I once knew. When he was a child, he lived a happy, healthy life. He had a warm family and a strong home, and he had his health. By all accounts, he was a happy, healthy child in his youth. Rarely subject to melancholy or anger. Loved by his friends and happy on his own as well. A good boy. But he began to have the strangest dreams. The first one he could remember he was in a forest. Walking, playing admiring the setting sun and the beautiful trees and the animals. No one else was there, but he remembered feeling safe and happy, and that all was well in this world. But without warning, everything went dark. The forest was cold. The trees were bare. And all of the animals were gone, except for one black cat. It was a very large cat, much taller and longer and broader than your average house cat, though it looked lean and hungry. It sat tall and straight, and it stared right at him with two large, brilliant green eyes. The boy stared back for some time, unsure what to do. He went to walk towards it, but he found that he was paralyzed where he stood, and then a panic set in. He tried to move, but his body was frozen. He tried to scream, but only a hoarse whisper squeezed out of his throat. He tried to squeeze his eyes shut, but they wouldn't close in the dream. Instead, the world around him grew darker and darker still until the only thing remaining in his view were two green eyes. And he woke up in a sweat, sitting up and screaming. And those eyes were burned into the part of his mind that we all have. That part where cobwebs and shadows and our primal fear of darkness live. Those eyes lived there now. And stayed with him. As he grew, at first the dream did not happen every night. But frequently. And no matter where he went or what he did, the cat was there. Never mind if it was a good dream or a bad dream, a realistic one or an abstract one, the cat would always appear. And every time it did, he was frozen in place, staring into those terrifying eyes. And the older he grew, the more often the cat came to him in his dreams, and the more blurred the line between dream and reality became. There were some nights where he'd open his eyes and be back in his real bedroom, unable to move, and those two green eyes were there, glowing in the corner, in the darkness, sometimes sitting next to him in bed, sitting on his chest sometimes, and he couldn't move, couldn't scream, could barely breathe. His daytime thought began to be consumed by this dream, 
Those eyes were with him night and day. He grew to dislike cats and deeply fear them. He dreaded sleep. He rarely slept. He had to do something. It can't be nothing. It can't mean nothing. He spoke with some intelligent, educated folk in town. They had no idea what the dream meant, and encouraged him to stop putting so much stock in such flimsy, unscientific things. He spoke with his friends and family, who agreed that he must stop thinking about the cat, and perhaps it will leave his subconscious alone. But he knew better. He found ancient texts, old documents about things that had long ago been forgotten and ignored in this town. Written off as heresy and superstition, these had been hidden away and frowned upon. But in these texts he came across a particular word. Harbinger. It seemed that there were numerous accounts of people who would see an animal, almost always a black animal such as a raven or a large black dog, and, shortly after, someone close to that witness would die. Harbingers of death, these ghosts were called, and they only had one purpose, to predict death. He was convinced. My whole life, something has been trying to tell me that someone is going to die. He became even more paranoid. He grew to adulthood. He became protective of his family and friends overly concerned with his mother and father's health. And the dreams continued each and every night now. And of course, as these things go, as he grew older, people he loved did die. And each and every time he was convinced that this was the death that the cat predicted. Until he would go home that night, and the dream would come back. It was maddening. Far away from this young man and the cat that wouldn't leave him alone. Foolish decisions were being made by men in power. Word spread soon across the land about war. War with a nearby country. Not a surprising war, one that everyone had anticipated and felt coming for quite some time. But there was a somber, morose sense in the streets of impending doom. And soon enough, of course, word came to his home. He would have to go and fight. And his parents were sad, but confident that he would succeed and return home safely. Just please try to get more sleep. Forget the cat. Just be healthy so that you can fight well and come home. He was sent away, and he trained hard. He learned how to fight and defend himself. And he did sleep better, and the dreams were less frequent, even stopped completely, for a little while. You're to go into enemy borders, he was told. You're to invade and fight the enemy on their territory. You're to have no mercy. They will kill you without hesitation, so do not waste any time. Fire on sight. The night after he heard this news, he lay in bed staring at the ceiling. Everyone else was asleep, and he considered his task. No mercy. Fire on sight. Take them down. He thought about his enemy. He thought about the terrible things that may happen to him if he was not quick enough or strong enough or accurate enough. He thought about his mother and his father, how he must fight well for them and return home victorious and healthy. 
And then he heard, softly, almost inaudibly, a meow. Slowly, shaking, he sat up in his cot. It was there, sitting on the end of his bed, staring at him with vivid, green eyes. Go away, he whispered. Go away. It didn't move. He reached over with a shaking hand to touch it. It stayed perfectly still, unflinching, unblinking, as his hand passed right through the animal. At that, it stood, and it jumped off the bed, and it disappeared as it walked away. A friend of his had got up in the night and walked by, and he asked him if he was all right. He nodded, but in truth he wasn't, for now he knew this thing did not exist in his dreams or his imagination. This was a phantom. This was a harbinger of death. His own death. He was sure. They traveled a few long days and nights, and he was haunted by this new knowledge. He barely ate, barely rested. They entered enemy territory. The place was a disaster. Buildings shattered or on fire. Women and children running through the streets, screaming, crying, searching. They set up a few camps in the area, barricaded and prepared. Or so they thought. You see, enemy soldiers ambushed them and they were quickly scattered, openly fighting in the streets, struggling to find cover and get the upper hand. He was hiding behind a barricade, reloading his rifle, when all of a sudden... That same soft meow. Not now, he begged. He was suddenly terrified. Clutching his loaded firearm tightly, he squeezed his eyes shut. But the barricade couldn't hold much longer. He glanced at what seemed to be a clear path towards a stone building that was holding up despite the damage. He could make it. If he was quick enough, he could do it. Then another sharp meow, louder coming from the building. He didn't know what it meant. Was his death waiting in there, then? Tears welled up in his eyes. If I stay here, I will likely die. If I go there, I know I will die. Taking a deep breath and holding his rifle with white knuckles, he ran to the building. He swung open the door and slammed it shut, catching his breath. Safe. For now. Then he heard it again. It wasn't a meow. It was a whimper. Someone in pain. The copper smell of blood filled his nose. He turned around to face the inside of the place. A fellow soldier, a comrade, no, not even a general, lay on the floor, dead, dead from what appeared to be a wound to the neck, a gun still clutched in his hands. Another whimper. A boy stood in the corner. Barely seventeen, he seemed. Clothes ragged and blood-stained with what seemed to be a wound to his shoulder where he was grazed by a bullet. He clutched a knife in his hand that was stained with blood. Black hair fell in front of his face, matted and covered with ash and blood. But even for the hair hiding his face, the man could see two green eyes. 
He immediately raised his rifle to aim at him, shaking. It was him. It was this creature the whole time. And the boy looked at him, tears in his eyes. He dropped the knife. He raised his hands. The soldier kept the gun trained on him. Are you alone? He asked. The boy didn't reply, but the soldier knew the answer to the question. The soldier heard cries outside in his own language, calling for the troops to fall back. This was a disaster. They hadn't anticipated this kind of defense. Orders were to withdraw. He looked out the window and saw them retreating. It was chaos. But the boy kept his green eyes fixed on him the whole time. He stepped closer with the rifle. Kill him, he thought to himself, before he kills you. Kill him and you'll have avenged the general. You'll have a medal for this. Kill him. His training and his commanders and his nightmares told him. But the longer he stared at him, the longer he left his gun pointed at the young enemy's head, the more he realized. The green eyes were not threatening him. They were not dangerous. They had never been dangerous. They were afraid. They were confused. And they were alone. His hands shook and the rifle shook and his jaw clenched. Those eyes he had hated his whole life were here, in front of him. And he knew that if he extinguished them now, they would never, ever leave him. He lowered the gun. He looked down at the dead general, then back to the boy. Goodbye, he said. He turned to the door to retreat with the rest of his comrades, when he suddenly felt a sharp pain in his chest. Someone outside spotted him and got him. So it was today, after all, he thought to himself. Huh. So be it. And everything went black. Don't be afraid, my friend. He awoke in an infirmary, quite sore but lucky to be alive thanks to the bullet just missing his heart. But he would have to be sent home. He was sent home from battle without having killed one person. He was even honored for risking his life trying to save a fallen general. And he heard no word about a boy being found at the scene. And he said no word about a boy being found at the scene. The soldier had the best sleep of his life that night. No more harbingers of death. No more nightmares or paralysis. No more green eyes in the dark. When I met the soldier, he was in his home. He was much older, perhaps prematurely aged due to his injury, which still pained him, even years and years later. He showed me photographs of his family, of his friends, of his fellow soldiers. One, in particular, of a striking man with messy black hair and piercing eyes, standing with a woman and children by his side. He sent it to me, years later. The soldier explained. And he smiled. 
I made the right choice. And as he told me the end to his story, a soft, strange creature brushed up against my leg, purring. It was a cat. Orange, this one, with pale yellow eyes and half his ear missing. <laughs> a funny little thing. The soldier smiled. <laughs> a friend of mine, he said, as the cat sprang up and landed on his lap, pacing and kneading gently to make himself comfortable. There were two other cats, slumbering peacefully in the windowsill. The world isn't all that terrible, my friends. Sometimes it doesn't pay to be gentle. But often, and in the most subtle, lovely ways, it really, really does. Sleep well tonight. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening again to episode 11 of On a Dark, Cold Night. This is your host, Kristen Zaza, and um, really happy to be here with you all. Uh, first of all, I was really lucky and happy to be a guest on the awesome podcast, the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I sat down with Becky Shrimpton, and we talked about one of my favorite movies of all time, The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee. Uh, we discussed a lot of cool things about it, the ideas of jump scares, finding inspiration for writing and horror, um, and uh, religion and horror, some really interesting themes and things that really uh, made the movie work for me. It's a really great, insightful podcast, and uh, these guys really know what they're talking about when it comes to Canadian film. So if that sounds like something you would be into, uh, please check them out at rcmpodcast.com. And again, my episode uh, that I appeared on was number 79 for The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee. But check out their other episodes as well, because uh, they're great. Also, as I promised, I'm going to keep talking about it, so there. Um, I'm appearing in a play in Toronto called Punk Rock. It's being produced by The Howland Company. Um... And it's going to be playing at Crow's Theater. We go from, let me check it out here on my, on my computer. Punk Rock is going to be running from March 29th to April 14th. And again, at Crow's Theater, specifically in the Streetcar Crow's Nest space. Um, tickets are available at howlandcompanytheater.com or at the Crow's Theater website. So get your tickets now because they are going fast. If you like On a Dark Cold Night, please rate and review and subscribe. You can do that on iTunes. Uh, you can review on Facebook. You can also find me now at podknife.com and leave a review there. Anything really in support of the show like that, some kind words would really mean a lot and, uh, and yeah, really help the show along. Also, if uh, you know someone who would like the show, please pass the word along. Um, follow and share on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at A Dark Cold Night. I'm on Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast. Um, you can also email anytime at darkcoldnightpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions. If you just want to say hi, I will reply to you. And if you feel like helping out in another way, you can find me at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. 
not going to push that one too hard, but if you're feeling generous and want to help a little podcaster out, why not, you know? Anyway, thank you guys so much. It has been a roller coaster of a week, and uh, sitting down and talking to you guys feels really nice, whoever you are. So thank you again, and talk soon. Bye.